this is the Defend from Day One webinar. Uh, essentially, it is a look into your claims investigation process. Uh, today is March 24th, and I'm Christian Cisan. Now, this is the question box. I guess a lot of you already know how to use it since you've told me that you're not getting any audio. Uh, if that's still the case, please still run it through me and uh, we'll figure out how to do this again. Uh, that's my contact information, email and phone. Uh, I'm available uh, outside of business hours. I know things happen. Uh, I'll get back to you if we can't get to your question at the end of the webinar. Okay. So. The purpose of today is to review what happens when there's an allegation of a work accident at your job location, uh, at a work site, uh, or maybe not on your job location. Uh, what are you doing in order to defend from day one, right? Because as soon as the outset, as soon as the uh, allegation happens, we are need we we need to be proactive instead of reactive, and the reason is actually in the law, right? So in New York there's a presumption of compensability. Work accident happens, you do nothing, it's presumed compensable, right? So we need to be able to do something to make sure that we uh, shore up our defenses and allow ourselves to prevent the claimant from using this law to their benefit, okay? So let's look at a reporting timeline, right? These are the timelines issued by the board itself. The accident happens, and you may have heard, heard of the 1810 rule, 18 days after the, the disability event, 10 days after knowledge, or 10 days after the disability, you then have to file the first report of injury, or if you're a self-insured employer, you can actually submit form C2F if you feel that uh, the fraud hasn't been done in time. Failure to do this will actually incur a penalty uh, if the board audits your claim at any point in time. You might have seen this in an administrative decision or even at the first hearing when the case actually comes up. And we all know the EC84, which is the notice of indexing that gives you 25 days to file the electronic denial preserving your defense. Now, it seems like you have more than one day, but I like to say defend from day one because a lot of times days go by and these things uh, don't get done in time. So if we start from day one, we can actually do better in the board's timelines, giving us a better opportunity to bring our denial together. Now, if you remember, there's uh, a certain percentage uh, uh, across all self-insureds and insurance carriers that uh, claims, in which they deny claims, right? It's, it's about eight to nine percent in which all claims are, are denied. Now, if your population is over that percentage, then you want to make sure that you can avoid an audit from the board by making sure that you're, you're denying the right cases and that when you actually deny them, the offers of proof that you have are not frivolous. So let's go into day one, right? A claimant's first words. Now, not as fun as a baby's first words. This actually makes me aggravated, but this is essentially what we talked about in the first installment of the webinar series in October. First, we talked about to whom the employee is, re uh, is reporting the accident, right? We want to make sure that the person who is receiving notice, who is essentially an agent of your company, is the right person. Is this person invested in putting through a good denial? Is this person going to be credible if they are called as a defense witness by your counsel? Can this person provide reason as to why a, an employee says something or omits something? Right? 
there, there has to be a link between that person and the employee alleging the accident to make sure that there is enough justification for us to bring that person in for rebuttal purposes. Recorded statements. Uh, we talked about that as well. Uh, recorded statements give us an opportunity to essentially knock the claimant down to a peg where we can bring it back later. Now, it's okay if they decide not to agree to this, right? Because they don't have to, but when they don't, that should trigger something. It should be an alert that allows you to essentially say, I'm gonna do more investigation on my end because there's a certain fishy reason why the statement is not uh, being taken, right? Along with that comes with an internal incident report. And I want to uh, clarify that as being different from the C3 that they'll file, right? In order to file the claim with the board, we all know that the claimant has to file Form C3. But the problem is Form C3 isn't being filled in your presence, most likely. Form C3 is being filled out with the presence of an attorney uh, or by himself, as him or herself, as they've had enough time to think about what's happened, right? So using an internal report has been very, very successful on our end to try and dispute some allegations that come through on the C3, right? So any changes that may occur over time can be used to discredit a claimant in saying where an accident happened, saying when an accident happened, saying what injuries uh, to what body parts have been uh, sustained, that kind of thing. Now along with that goes medical releases, right? We want to make sure that if there is any kind of indication that the claimant have had claimant has had prior treatment. You might know this because he's filed a claim before. Uh, you know, we like to call them frequent flyers. Or you might know he, he might have uh, talked to you know, his supervisor or his coworkers about uh, prior treatment or maybe athletic activities that may have resulted in the need for treatment. Have those medical releases filled out as soon as possible because if we can only get them uh, at the hearing, that gives us a limited amount of time to subpoena records and determine if we can deny based on a pre-existing condition or if apportionment is available to a different claim, okay? Initial medical treatment, right, we're, we're gonna uh, be fishy if they, they refuse treatment on scene, but if they do, we also wanna make sure that we're not requiring them to go to a specific provider, right? We can advise them to go to uh, Dr. John Smith, but we cannot tell them, hey, you have to go to John, Dr. John Smith before you can do anything, right? So advise, not require. Now, today's focus is going to be on World Trade Center claims. Now, recently, uh, the board announced that there would be a new deadline for filing the claims, September 11th of 2018. So essentially 17 years after the exposure which would have happened that led to a claim. We've dealt with this before, it's been reopened before. The funny thing about this uh, new change is that claims that were previously disallowed are now going to be reopened if the disallowance was based on an untimely filing issue. So cases that you may have closed may be coming back before your desk. You wanna make sure that uh, you can really react uh, in a way that you're not held to gunpoint later, right? Uh, we're gonna go over paid workers versus volunteers because both of them have the viability of filing these claims. But essentially, defend from day one applies to today, right? If you have a disallowed claim or if you have workers on your books that have uh, performed service for our country, God bless them, at the site, 
We need to make sure that we know of the possibility that it's going to occur, right? Okay, so distinguishing between a paid worker and a volunteer. Now, as you can see, a paid worker only has to file a C3 to start the claim, along with Form WTC-12. But a volunteer has to fill out a WCT Vol 3 along with those five items, right? All of those five items are necessary to begin pursuit of a claim. So there could be an instance where you have a paid worker that did volunteer work at the World Trade Center. This presents an opportunity for us to determine whether a worker who was on our books was actually asked to perform volunteer work uh, by someone outside the company, maybe someone inside the company at the site. We can try and determine whether or not they have filed enough documents to start the claims process. And of course, if we can get them to volunteer status, it gives us more time to investigate the claim. Okay, so World Trade Center claims in general, these are gonna be your issues with uh, defending and denying, right? Lay witnesses are gonna be especially tough. Uh, we, the longer that these claims and the deadlines get extended, uh, you're going to have issues with pulling back supervisors and coworkers and witnesses on the scene from something that happened 16 years ago, right? It's always best to check anyway, right? Because those companies may still be uh, dedicated members of the company. Uh, they still might have uh, union affiliations that you can try to reach out to them there. They might not remember it. In fact, they probably won't remember it because everyone else was helping each other on that day. Uh, and they might not be able to recall specifically whether someone injured themselves or exposed themselves to certain in, uh, dust and fumes and things like that. But it's always, 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 always worth it to check on that. Right? Because if you have that, if you have that witness, right, that means that you're going to have the one claim where a witness comes forth, right? Because most of these claims aren't denied on the basis of lay testimony. They're denied on causal relationship issues and coverage. So let's start with causal relationship. We know those specific IME physicians that deal with these claims, right? They're in the Rolodex. That's what your vendor tells you. They, they can do it on these dates uh, at these locations. Take a look at the reports that you guys have seen, or even ask us uh, our opinion about certain IME doctors, right? Because certain doctors that always find causal relationship are problematic for obvious reasons. Now, it could be as a result of taking the, the claimant as at, its, at his or her word and then moving forward, or it could be the result of something that we can actually improve, right? Like, can we, can we write a better IME cover letter? Can we ask the doctor better questions? And can we find the best doctors, right? So those issues, if you're already facing an uphill battle where they're going to find causal relationship, right? Let's try and find other avenues to pick the best doctors and ask the right questions. Now, coverage is actually the most uh, often used denial is essentially, and it's essentially because there are going to be so many different insurance carriers in the room and the judge is going to have to pick one at, at one point. So if you think about uh, what needs to be done to preserve that defense, it's the policy, right? So the policy should be the number one thing that you send over to defend from day one, right? Because there are going to be certain exclusions that apply, right? For example, uh, it might only cover a certain type of worker. It might only cover carpenters. Uh, it, it might only cover a certain location. It might only cover uh, rebuilding at ground zero, but not at the pier or not at the docks or not at the subway stations. Um, 
it may only cover certain employees from a specific project, right? We've talked about wrap-up policies before. Uh, so the policy is very important to determining whether you have a coverage defense, right? And a lot of times what we see is coverage is a catch-all defense that uh, defense, defense counsels use because they know that it's not waived uh, even at the outset of the claim. Right, so make sure that we can try and facilitate these issues first so you don't have to kick the can down the road and bring it back later because eventually you're going to be hit with that question, right? Can I produce a policy? And if it's a little uh, iffy or ambiguous on language, can I produce an underwriter? Okay, those issues uh, kind of go towards uh, regular claims as well, right? We know that there are certain problems with getting witnesses, getting IME doctors, and uh, litigating coverage. But specific to World Trade Center claims, because it's a bit more current, um, they become even more, more important. Okay? So we're going to go to questions now. And if you'll give me a second, I'm going to scroll through some questions. Okay. Uh, Anne is asking, what defenses are waived by uh, the failure to provide a FROI 04? That's actually a good question because uh, a lot of times claimants' counsels will go in and all they'll do is calculate when the FROI 04 or the FROI 04 is filed in comparison to the notice of indexing. And they'll ask for an establishment of the claim based on that fact alone, right? So, but we know that not all defenses are waived by this statute. You can still litigate notice, timely claim filing, coverage, and subject matter jurisdiction. So, Anne, thank you for that question. Um, if those defenses are viable, you want to make sure that your PH 16.2 raises them and maybe even for good measure provides an offer of proof to know or let, or let the judge know that that case isn't a frivolous defense. All right, um, we have some other questions, but uh, we don't have any more time today, probably because the audio didn't work. So again, I apologize for that. Um, any questions, uh, you can uh, email me, call me. And another thing that I'm trying to do is offer a service to review your intake process in person, right? We've had a couple clients who have changed their investigation strategies and have actually asked for our opinion to either comment, uh, draft language, in certain documents or even go to job locations, job sites to see what could be done better. And that's always a service that we can provide. So you can always ask me to uh, review your intake process, go visit your job, job site, and that's something that we hope that we can come together to defend from day one. Again, thank you for staying with me through the audio problem. Thank you for attending the webinar and we'll see you soon.